Welcome back to Curbside Consults. My name is Leslie Chang, and I'm one of the New England Journal of Medicine editorial fellows for the 2021-2022 academic year. This episode is a continuation of the series we are doing focused on discussing new practice-changing guidelines. We hope to share insight into how guidelines are developed and high-yield clinical pearls about the application of these guidelines to day-to-day -day clinical practice. Today, we'll be discussing the recently published guideline updates on the management of Clostridioides difficile infection, or C. diff. There are two sets of guidelines published just earlier this year, one in the journal Clinical Infectious Diseases and another in the American Journal of Gastroenterology. Joining us today is Dr. Jessica Allegretti, Assistant Professor at Harvard Medical School, gastroenterologist at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts, and an expert in the field of IBD and C. diff. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. We're so excited to have this chance to speak with you today. It's very neat that you were able to be part of this committee that helped develop the GI guidelines. Could you tell us a little bit about the individuals and the groups who updated these guidelines? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So I was part of the GI guidelines that were created and published in the American Journal of Gastroenterology through the American College of Gastroenterology. And when you're putting together a guidelines committee, really, you want to have obviously content experts. So we had myself and several other gastroenterologists who are experts in practicing in the space of C. diff. We also had a colorectal surgeon on the team as well as the pharmacists who are helping us sort of make therapy decisions. But also more importantly, you need to have grade methodologists who help you think through the quality of the evidence and how you actually grade the statements for the guidelines. So that is sort of how you comprise a guidelines team. Gotcha. Can you tell us a little bit more about this grade approach? Because I've read that there's some difference in the certainty of the evidence and the strength of recommendation. And how does that come about? Yeah. So I would say as a very broad overview, the way you think about this process is there are several steps to it. The very first thing you do is you, as a committee, decide what questions you want to answer. What is important for the field that needs answering to go into the guideline? We call those PICO questions. You know, you generate your list of PICO questions. And as a committee, you say, this is what we strive to answer in this guidance. Then you do an exhaustive literature review by each question and see everything that's out there or not out there that pertains to the question you want to answer. And then you basically look at the quality of that evidence. Are you looking at randomized controlled trials, cohort studies? Are there just case reports? And so you really are able to sort of separate the quality of the evidence based on the types of studies that have been done. And based on what you've learned from your literature review, you may make a recommendation on how strongly you feel about this question you've set out to answer based on what you've read. And then the grade methodologist will actually go through with a formula and determine the quality of evidence using this basically statistical method. And so that's where you find the strong recommendation, moderate or low. Those come from actually content experts who say, how important is this question? And does the literature help us answer this question? And the quality actually comes from the grade methodologist. So that's why you see those sort of two categories when you're looking at these statements. Very cool. I think you're talking about these PICO questions. And so right off the bat, how do these new guidelines add to our current understanding of C. diff? So this represented really a big shift in the field. Since 2018 until now, there's been a lot of updates in how we manage these patients. The most recent ACG guidelines before this new one was from 2013. So you can imagine a lot has changed. And I would say some of the big takeaway points of things that were updated 
are what we consider first line therapies. So previously you would think about how sick the patient was. Are they sort of a mild patient who's stable? Maybe you're seeing them in the clinic. Are they a very severe patient, meaning they're in the hospital or are they fulminant, meaning they're in the ICU? That's sort of how you can think about those categories. And we used to think that for the mild outpatient, metronidazole was an adequate therapy. And we know with the emerging data, the failure rates of metronidazole are just very high. And not to mention, there are a lot of side effects associated with metronidazole. These patients often feel very unwell. They get that nasty metallic taste in their mouth. It can really sort of make the GI symptoms actually even worse. And so metronidazole has really fallen out of favor as a first line therapy, regardless of severity. So now when you look at the guidelines, you see that for first line, for mild sort of outpatient use or severe disease, meaning those inpatients, it's really vancomycin or fidaxomycin that is considered first line. Now, I will mention that the IDSA guidelines just, just hot off the press, released a sort of addendum to their guidelines that they really do consider fidaxomycin to be first line, even above vancomycin. We, as the ACG guideline committee, did review that data And we still feel that it is appropriate to consider both vancomycin as well as fidaxomycin as first-line options. Got it. Super high-yield stuff. Let's transition to a case in which these guidelines may be helpful in informing our decision-making in the clinical setting. So we'll introduce Ms. Jones here. She's a 67-year-old woman who keeps having recurrent urinary tract infections. She unfortunately had three infections in the last year, most recently five days ago. And she was sent home on some oral antibiotics, but now she calls your primary care office with complaints of abdominal pain and diarrhea. She has about four to five episodes of unformed stools every day, she tells you. You think that this may be related to C. diff. How would you think about testing her for C. diff? I would say one sort of clinical pearl that I would just note um, is many patients don't know what diarrhea is. And so a question that I always ask patients when they are telling me that they're having diarrhea is if I was to put your stool in a cup, would it take the shape of a cup or would it have its own shape? Because really what you're getting at is unformed stool. And so you really want to confirm that the patient is having unformed liquidy stool. And once you confirm that, and it sounds like with this patient's history, of course, C. diff should be high on your mind. You really want to do appropriate C. diff testing. And what I mean by that is there are several different types of C. diff tests but not all of them are created equal. And so it's important to know what you're ordering and how to interpret it. Based on the current guidance, you really wanna be using a two-step testing algorithm. That means you wanna start with a very sensitive test and reflex to a very specific test. And so your sensitive testing options are the GDH antigen test, which is an ELISA-based test that essentially looks for the enzyme glutamate dehydrogenase which is present in all C. diff isolates. So you can consider this test like a first pass screen. Are there any organisms present? The PCR test is similar, except that it is looking for genetic material that codes for toxin in a C. diff organism. So it is telling you again about the presence of organisms that are potentially toxigenic. So both of those tests are first pass screens. They're telling you about the presence of organisms. However, It is not the bacteria that makes you sick. It is the presence of toxin. So you need to reflex to that toxin test to actually confirm infection. So there is an ELISA-based toxin test that you would want to reflex to, again, confirm actual disease. If either of your first two tests are positive and the second is negative, 
that patient is colonized and not infected and you need to look for another source of their diarrhea. Great. So you order these tests for her, the two-step testing. She has a bowel movement and it does take the shape of the cup that you gave her. So unformed stool and you diagnose her with C. diff. She otherwise looks well and the rest of her other laboratory studies are pretty unremarkable. So what do these new guidelines suggest about management of Ms. Jones' first episode of C. diff? So again, remember, first line, regardless of severity, would be fidaxomycin or vancomycin. I think they are both great options. Really, the factor here is insurance coverage and costs, as is unfortunately many things that we do in medicine. Fidaxomycin is a great agent in that it is bactericidal, whereas vancomycin is bacteriostatic. And if you actually look at the head-to-head trial that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine, you see that Fidaxomycin was found to be non-inferior to Vanco, but in fact, if you actually look at the details of that study, it was better at achieving overall global cure and at preventing recurrences. So in an elderly patient where you're already worried about recurrent infection, because we know that is a risk factor, I might preferentially use Fidaxomycin in this patient if we could get it covered by her insurance. The problem with this agent is that it still can be quite expensive. And so you want to make sure your patients can afford their medications. If not, vancomycin at a dose of 125 milligrams Q6 hours for 10 days is perfectly adequate first-line therapy. So you send her home on vancomycin. Unfortunately, her insurance doesn't cover fridaxomycin. But as you guessed, Dr. Allegretti, she represents to your clinic with recurrent diarrhea, unformed stools, and abdominal pain. This time she has some fevers and a neutrophilic predominant leukocytosis on her laboratory studies. You diagnose her with recurrent C. diff based on your two-step testing. So how would you manage her first recurrence? You would have already considered this patient high risk just based on her age, I think for developing recurrent C. diff. So this is a patient you would have been watching closely, presumably. And so I think the take-home from both sets of guidelines is on a first recurrence or second confirmed episode, do something different. Don't do the same thing you just did. So if we just use the standard course of ankylmycin, That's not what we should be reaching for again. We should be attempting to get fidaxomycin if we can. If not, you can do a vanco taper, which basically means a prolonged vanco course, typically over six to eight weeks, where you're slowly reducing the dose, starting at that four times a day dose. And just to clarify, if you had treated her first episode with fidaxomycin, would you have then done something differently and gone to the tapering, tapered vancomycin? Yeah, I think if I had used fidaxomycin for 10 days up front, my second line of action would have also been a vancomycin taper. Exactly. Just to take a tangent here, the ID guidelines make mention of a new drug that I've never heard of before called vexlatusumab. Could you tell us in what circumstances we should be thinking about using that and how it works? Absolutely. So bezlotoximab, which is also called Zimplava, is an IV infusion. It's a monoclonal antibody against toxin B. So it is not an antibiotic. Again, it's a monoclonal antibody delivered as a single IV infusion. And its FDA labeled indication is prevention of recurrent C. diff. So it is not meant to treat C. diff, but to prevent a subsequent recurrence. And in a patient like this, who's elderly, who you would consider high risk, This is something you could consider using even during their first episode of C. diff, again, to prevent that recurrence, which she ultimately did have. And so the way you use this therapy 
is you give them this single IV infusion while they're on their course of antibiotics to treat the current episode. So it could be at day one of vancomycin or day 10. It has to be during their course of therapy. And again, it's just a single IV infusion. And if you look at the data, this showed about a 10% reduction in recurrences using this agent. However, on a post-hoc analysis, if you account for number of risk factors, if you have increased number of risk factors for recurrency, then the more risk factors you have, the more likely you were to benefit from an agent like this. So if you had a patient who was very high risk for recurrence, I think it's a great idea to think about using a therapy like this early in their treatment course. Perfect. And you mentioned that Ms. Jones is very high risk. What risk factors would you think about in making that determination of someone who's high risk versus lower risk of recurrence? Yeah. So when I think of risk factors for recurrence, there are several sort of obvious ones. Elderly age, those who live in nursing homes or facilities or rehab centers, anyone on immunosuppression, so chemotherapy, really any immunosuppressive agents, those with inflammatory bowel disease because of the mucosal breakdown are at increased risk for recurrence. Those on chronic PPIs, as well as chronic antibiotics. So if you have a patient who has on chronic antibiotics for say chronic UTIs, chronic skin infections, what have you, they are also at increased risk. And so if you add up the number of risk factors a patient has, whether it be one, two, or three, as opposed to zero, if they have none of those risk factors, then I consider that a low risk patient. So let's continue with Ms. Jones's saga here. So unfortunately, nine months later, she comes back to your clinic with dysuria and increased urinary urgency, which she describes as just feeling like her prior urinary tract infections. Unfortunately, when you try to prescribe her a course of antibiotics this time, she's very reluctant to take them due to fear of recurrent C. diff. Is there anything that she should take to reduce her chances of recurrent C. diff infection on those antibiotics? Yes. So I would say there's a couple of points here. Number one, I'm assuming she cleared that first recurrence after the Vanco taper we gave her many, many months ago. And so she cleared that sort of cycle of C. diff. Anything that's happening now, even if she was to be presenting, say, with C. diff now, is not recurrent C. diff. The window of recurrence is eight weeks. Once a patient makes it eight weeks after they've completed their antibiotic course, they are cured. And anything that happens down the line is a new episode from a new strain. And so I think that's an important point there. Because if we were to put her on antibiotics again, it's by no means a guarantee that she's going to get C. diff again just because she had it nine months ago. And so I think doing that counseling is very important. This doesn't become something lifelong that hangs over their heads that they always need to be worried about. Now, that being said, because of her history, it's very understandable that she's worried. And so what I often recommend is don't avoid antibiotics that you actually need. You want to avoid unnecessary antibiotics. So I always counsel my patients to make sure that if they're being prescribed an antibiotic, make sure that it's necessary. Ask your provider, is there an alternative or is this something I really need? And if it's something you really need, though, in this case, if this is a confirmed UTI, of course, we don't want her to have sequela of an untreated infection. Then what we would recommend is the narrowest spectrum antibiotic possible for the shortest course possible to really try to minimize risk. What you don't need is concurrent probiotics. I think there's a common misconception that if you take probiotics with a course of antibiotics or chasing a course of antibiotics, that will reduce your risk of C. diff. That is not the case. And I do not recommend that. That's helpful to know. Would you recommend prophylactic 
vancomycin for her if you had to put her back on antibiotics for her urinary tract infection? So I would say at this moment for this patient, I would not. I think my general philosophy on prophylactic vancomycin is we are just lessening or damaging the microbiome further by adding more antibiotics into the mix. And so again, you don't want to just unnecessarily add prophylactic vancomycin. Now, if this was a patient who has already proven to get C. diff every single time they take antibiotics, let's say she's already had a fecal transplant even and has failed that, there are circumstances where I do think prophylactic vancomycin in a very high-risk patient might be a reasonable. But in this situation, she cleared recurrent C. diff. She um, has been doing well for nine months. She has not had a recurrence since. I would let her be treated for the UTI with close observation and see what happens. That's helpful to hear. I like that learning point about recurrent C. diff versus a new episode of C. diff infection and the distinction between the two. You mentioned fecal transplant. Can you tell us a little bit about how that's done and when that's indicated? Absolutely. So fecal microbiota transplantation or FMT for short is literally the installation of minimally manipulated microbial communities from the stool of a healthy donor into a patient's GI tract. And so that's really how it's distinguished from defined consortia or sort of families of organisms or probiotics, because it is not just bacteria, it's whole stool. And so what comes with that bacteria, fungi, viruses, metabolites, really everything that comes with stool. And so because of that, this product is considered to be both a biologic or tissue, as well as a drug by the FDA. So it is fairly complex. It is not FDA approved for any indication, and that's important to note. And so the FDA does hold a policy called enforcement discretion, which means for patients with C. diff not responding to standard of care therapy, you can clinically offer them a fecal transplant. That is the only indication under this policy of enforcement discretion. Um, for any other indication, you would need an investigational new drug license from the FDA and utilizing this in the setting of a clinical trial. So what does that mean for us clinically? So clinically, we can offer FMT to patients who have recurrent C. diff, and that is traditionally defined as three or more confirmed episodes. So if we think about Ms. Jones, if we had given her that Vanco taper and she had failed or recurred despite that, she would qualify for an FMT at that point, and we could offer her that therapy. The way you deliver an FMT can vary. I would say traditionally it's done via a colonoscopy or a flexible sigmoidoscopy where we actually deliver the material into the colon. There are also capsule preparations of varying forms, depending on what literature you read, in which you can actually swallow the material. And so depending on what you have available at your site, those are some things you may be able to offer this patient. So just to clarify, FMT is both used for refractory episodes of C. diff as well as for prevention of further reoccurrences. Is that correct? Great question. And thank you for the clarification here. So recurrency diff, again, this is really meant to be a preventative agent in that, again, you are preventing the next episode. So if Ms. Jones had come back with that third confirmed episode, I would have put her on vancomycin and let her be treated for that episode while I'm scheduling the FMT. And then we would do the FMT and she would be off antibiotics. There is also another population of patients, those with fulminant disease. Those are those who are critically ill in the ICU for which there are very few treatments other than colectomy in which you can utilize FMT 
to treat those patients. And so that's a unique subset of the C. diff patient population where FMT can be helpful, where it is actually helping to treat the disease. In the outpatient setting for recurrent C. diff, it's really preventing the subsequent recurrences. Thanks for clarifying that. Any final words or learning points that you'd like our audience to take away from this? Yeah, I would just say, regardless of where you're practicing, I think the most important thing you can do if you're going to be taking care of patients, C. diff is going to be something you're going to encounter. Really know what tests your facility offers. Ask your micro lab what tests are available. Because again, remember, they are not all created equal. You want to know what you're testing for and how to interpret those tests. And you really want to be using a two-step testing algorithm because you need to be able to distinguish colonization from active infection. That's really important. And again, ask those patients about form stool versus unformed stool because you will be surprised. Many patients have perfectly formed bowel movements and they think they have diarrhea. So I think doing that education with your patients as well is really important. Well, thank you for following along with us as we journey through Ms. Jones' medical saga. And thank you so much, Dr. Allegretti, for sharing your expertise with us today. My absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. A few summarizing learning points for our audience on our way out. We learned that these new guidelines were both published in the GI and ID literature and developed using the GRADE approach for evaluating the quality of evidence. Specifically, when it comes to diagnosis and management of C. diff infection, it is important, firstly, to test individuals with symptoms suggestive of C. diff using the two-step testing approach. When thinking about management, stratify individuals into mild, moderate, severe, and fulminant disease, with the new guidelines suggesting that either fidoxamycin or vancomycin are the first-line therapies for a first episode of mild C. diff infection. Important to note that metronidazole has largely fallen out of favor as first-line treatment. With recurrent episodes, bezlotoximab can be considered as an adjunct agent, and fecal microbiota transplant, FMT, which is not yet FDA-approved, can also be considered for prevention of further episodes of C. diff therapy. That wraps up this episode of Curbside Consults. Our production team at NEJM Resident 360 includes Karen Buckley, Lynn Winston-Perry, Kyle Simmons, Mike Thomasis, Tim Vining, Scott Williams, and Kathy Stern. Also a special thanks to our NEJM Education Editor, Dr. O.P. Hamvik. Curbside Consults is brought to you by NEJM Resident 360, a product of the NEJM Group.